Hello, welcome to another episode of How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent in the community. I'm your host, Tunde, and on the podcast this week, we speak to Dr. Stephanie Boyce. Stephanie is not only a solicitor, but from March 2021 to October 2022, she was president of the Law Society. In doing so, she became the first black person and the sixth woman to become president of the prestigious and influential body. You are about to hear how she made it from the humble beginnings of growing up on a council estate in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire to becoming the president of the Law Society, which is the governing body for all solicitors up and down the country. Here is my conversation with Dr. Stephanie Boyce. Okay, so welcome everybody. Today we have on the show Dr. I, Stephanie Boyce. Dr. Stephanie, how how are you doing today? I'm not too bad, thank you. Very good, very good. And I I know that you would prefer me to call you Stephanie, so I'll I'll do that for the remainder of the interview. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Now, I guess to cover off the name, I know that you were born Ingrid Stephanie Boyce, but everybody knows you as as Stephanie. So how... how, (laughs) I don't know if you've covered this on a previous interview, but how, how did that come about? How, how are you known as Stephanie? Well, can I say the only reason why uh, Ingrid is out there is because somebody outed me on Wikipedia. But um, there is a bit of a debate because up until a couple of weeks ago, I had understood uh, that my name came about because my mother uh, had just finished watching an Ingrid Bergman film you know, her best friend at school was Ingrid and hence going against my father's wishes, named me Ingrid. And uh, my father's dislike of the name was so much, uh, as I had understood, that instead of being Ingrid Stephanie Boyce, as it was recorded on my birth certificate, uh, he switched it. And so up until the age of 12, I thought my name was Stephanie Ingrid Boyce. And then when I got my first uh, passport legal document, realised that actually my name was Ingrid Stephanie Boyce. So, you know, a nod to my mother, um, uh, hence why I have the I before my name. But but seemingly the I before one's name uh, is, is, you know, the source of much uh, conversation as to how people, different people interpret what the I means. Indeed, indeed. And I, I mean, I was doing some research before today and there are quite a number of Stephanie Boyce's and also one or two Dr. Stephanie Boyce's. I mean, there's one in particular in the US and she's a educational consultant. I don't know if you've uh, had a chance to speak to her at all or do you know of her at all? Well, I only know of her because uh, I randomly do, for security reasons, randomly do a a Google of myself to make sure that the content that's out there about me is uh, fair and accurate and so forth. So uh, I only know of her because every so often she will come up in those searches. But but you make a good point. I should reach out to her. <laughs> let her know that uh, Tunde recommended it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's go right back to the start. I know you you were you were born in or grew up in Aylesbury. Where is that, and how were the first you know two or three years of your your life as far as you remember? Absolutely. So Aylesbury is in the Chilterns in Buckinghamshire. Um, and, you know, when I was growing up there in the late 70s, it was uh, a place, you know, uh, in the country, very rural. Um, I grew up on a council estate in a single parent household. One of the first go to in my family, first generation British, the first to go to 
university. Both my parents did not go to university. Um, so, you know, coming from a low socioeconomic background, not having much money and, and, and to reach the heights, if you like, that I have reached uh, has been a remarkable journey. But of course, it started all those years ago on a, a council estate in Prebendal Farm, Ellsbury, Buckinghamshire. And I still live in Buckinghamshire to this day. And when you say to people about Buckinghamshire, they automatically think leafy Buckinghamshire. But it's it's fair to say that Buckinghamshire, like lots of other places in the United Kingdom, has social mobility cold spots. There are still students uh, and individuals who don't have the same opportunities um, as others elsewhere. So I'm always keen to point that out, that actually leafy Buckinghamshire for some is not always what it is, um, you know, conjured up to be. Great. Yes, uh, I, I've got some family living in, in Buckinghamshire. So yeah, quite quite familiar with that area. But obviously going to school in Ellsbury as well. How was school, you know, back in Ellsbury? Was it quite a, an enjoyable time or did you have a few problems at, uh, in primary school? Well, it was an enjoyable time as, as far as I can remember it. And lots of, you know, individuals who went to school with, we remained friends to this day. Um, it was fair to say that Ellsbury at that time was not uh, very diverse compared to now, where it is very diverse. But growing up in the 1970s, uh, I was about to say 60s, I was about to age myself, but <laughs> growing up in the 1970s, it wasn't terribly diverse. It was, as I say, uh, a town, you know, I remember um, the cattle market in the centre of the town going down there as the farmers would bring the cow, uh, the cows to market. Um, so you'd, you you do well to stay clear of that area on, uh, you know, on the days that the market brought, uh, the farmers brought uh, the cattle to town. But I grew up, uh, as I say, on Prebendal Farm, which was named after a farm and annexed off of part of a farm. So the summertime spent watching the farmer gather in the hay, waiting to, you know, for him to finish, to to go and explore the hail bells, which we probably weren't supposed to do, but uh, but did. And just, you know, playing marbles, conkers, all of those things that for health and safety reasons now one can't do. But, you know, I just remember, I still remember the smell of summer, the searing heat of the sun bearing down on the freshly painted wood. And that smell has just always reminds me of summer. I've never been able to replicate that smell again, but that is something that is certainly um, at the front of my mind. I didn't know that kids can't play conkers anymore. I didn't. I didn't know that. But uh, well, most yeah. schools, yes, for health and safety reasons, right. most schools have. Because uh, you'd be amazed, the, you know, the injury that can come about from uh, playing conkers, but and, and and indeed marble marbles. But you know, all of those things. You know, saving up our pocket money, going to the local shop, buying our fishing net going down to the local brook and all of those things, which are now sealed off or, yeah. you know, you can't access those things, um, which I think is, a, is you know, for the most part, a terrible shame. Yeah. Um, but certainly that fond memories of my childhood. And what, what kind of student were you? Because I know that you kind of declared to your family at the age of seven that you wanted to be a lawyer. So that is pretty early on that you obviously kind of focused on on that career. What kind of student were you back in primary school and then going into secondary school? So Buckinghamshire remains a selective county. So I was, uh, gosh, what type of student was I? I was a naughty, curious student. <laughs> but, um, but, but going up to the is it the 11, I was getting confused, 11 plus, 12 plus, 11 plus. Um, I did not make that cut. And so absolutely devastated 
my parents remained of the view that it was stolen from me, it was taken from me. And so many factors go into that and still do, in as much that they took into consideration your social status, your background, you know, um, and things that they still do, whether you'll cope with going to a selective school, i.e. a grammar school, and so forth. So my parents maintained that I was robbed and my grades were given to someone else. So later in life, when I had the opportunity to, I put myself forward to join these appeal panels because I wanted to see and understand the thinking that goes into uh, the individuals who review or, or look at these appeals and decide who gets in and who doesn't. And I continued to do that up until I was elected as Deputy Vice President in 2019. And then for a number of reasons, I had to step back from doing that. But one of the things I would say to anybody listening, if you have the opportunity to give back, to put yourself forward, to join your local authority, education appeal panels, exclusion appeal panels, any of that, become a governor, any of that, put yourself forward. You can make a difference. Your voice counts. And that is what's required because head teachers still have a say in students' suitability to go to these uh, selective schools, grammar schools. Teachers, as we know, still have a say, and not just in the grading, but I'm still, all these years later, still hearing students say to me, and in fact, I heard it this week again, the same that was said to me at the time, that you're not cut out to be X, Y, and Z. Sometimes it was, you wasn't cut out to be a lawyer. Sometimes it was, you will never make something of yourself. And again, this week, I heard uh, those words that my teacher has told me to study anything other than law. And, you know, we need to, um, first of all, teachers need to, some teachers, not all, need to change that narrative because the law is a welcoming, opening profession. And if you believe that you have the skills and attributes, whether that's the law, whether it's medicine, whether it's science, any of those things, then it's up to you to put yourself forward and not for teachers to tell you that you can't. And to want to be a lawyer at seven, I mean, there must have been some kind of role model or maybe, I don't know, you saw a TV program. I mean, what was the uh, events or image that made you want to become a, a lawyer back then? A number of things, a number of factors that fed into that. So first of all, I grew up surrounded by the sounds of injustices. I could see people domestically and globally struggling to enforce their rights. And, you know, very cognizant of what was going on um, or had gone on in America, what was going on, what still is going on. But also South Africa, you know, with Mr. Mandela, Mr. Nelson Mandela. And if we look at Mr. Mandela, who was a lawyer himself, but not able to practice because he was incarcerated, as we all know, but also domestically what was going on. And at the age of seven, I wanted to make a difference. Not quite sure really what that difference was going to be, but I wanted to use my voice uh, to enable those who cannot speak, who are voiceless, to give them a voice. And so that was the drive, the energy. And also, dare I say it, and I have been booed and I have been criticised for saying this, but Margaret Thatcher, she was a role model for me and for many others, and, you know, for some people, unfortunately, remains to this day. But I would say, I qualify that by saying, I do not agree with what she went on to do. But in terms of being the first, being an education minister, female education minister, being a barrister, she was a qualified barrister. 
She was our first female prime minister. All of those things were powerful imagery of what I could become. And of course, there were others. There are so many, so many different others within my home, within my community, people who I've met along the way. I've referenced America. And when I had the opportunity to go to a premiere of the Reverend Al Sharpton, who, of course, is very infamous when it comes to the American civil rights movement, when I had the opportunity to go to his uh, premiere, Loudmouth, and to stand next to him, the feeling of being next to someone who has been so pivotal in history and who stood next to Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was just, it was overwhelming. It was amazing. Well, you've, you've mentioned America there and you found yourself emigrating to the States, uh, I believe with your mother for a number of years. I mean, what part did you settle in? Gosh. So we, when we initially went, we, my stepfather was, sta- was in the American Air Force and we, he was stationed in uh, Plattsburgh, upstate New York, near Lake Champlain. I had never been there before. I had never known winters as cold as those winters. <laughs> we then, I did some, uh, spent some time in North Carolina, uh, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, before we settled as a family in Pennsylvania and Norristown, is where Norristown Area High School is where I would graduate from high school. So when we're talking today about reaching out, maybe I should reach out to Norristown Area High School as well, because uh, having graduated from there in 1991, within a few days, I was back on the plane back to the United Kingdom. And how did you find the States? And and also, how did the kids find you, you know, with a very British accent? I'm guessing there weren't too many black British girls back then in, in the in the 70s or 80s. How did they find you? For me, it was um, it was turbulent, mm. in as much that here I was, a young uh, child. I think I had just turned twelve. I just turned twelve. You know, I was coming of age, finding myself, and here I am, plucked from everything familiar, known to me, to emigrate to America, and coming from rural Buckinghamshire as it was then. I spoke with a twang, you know. So in Buckinghamshire, we used to have a really lovely twang. So instead of TH, I thought we would say, you know, I thought it was going to be like this. But <laughs> anyway, but so it was it was difficult going across to America because for lots of those kids, the American kids who had traveled the world because of their, you know, their parents' occupation in the military, they were, I think it's fair to say, they were a lot more worldly and schooled, quote unquote, than I, who had come from rural Buckinghamshire. And so I got, um, and because, as you say, the British accent, how could those questions, you know, a black child, you know, because at that time on television, we didn't see much ethnic diversity representation coming out of the uh, British programs that were then beamed uh, internationally. We didn't see much of that. So lots of people had their own notions as to, you know, I think they couldn't figure me out. Who is this person with a British accent? But Later in life, um, throughout high school, I anchored one of our, we had our own TV station. I got to anchor that. And I remember one of my first jobs at Burger King, I was put on the, uh, the cash register. Cause if you remember back in the day, well, certainly in America, you'd come into Burger King, place your order. And I would, the cashier, the person doing the, the take, order taking would repeat it over the microphone. So people would come in, you know, one whopper, French fries and whatever. And uh, the boss, the owner of the franchise would say to me, you are to do nothing else but the till. And I was terribly frustrated. But the reason why she wanted me to do only the till was because people came in because they wanted to hear this British accent, you know, 
echoing throughout Burger King across the microphone. Yes, that accent probably still gets you quite far in America today, doesn't it? I mean, absolutely. Uh, yeah, but by all accounts, it was uh, quite a challenging time. I've I've, I've read elsewhere, or I can't remember if it, was, if it was another podcast, but sort of financially, it was quite difficult during your time in the states, and um, you would often have to budget on behalf of your family uh, yes. because you were the, the more financially astute member of the uh, of the family. I mean, how, mm-hmm. how, how how was it during that time? It was because my my mother's uh, marriage broke down and so we were left to effectively fend for ourselves in a different country. And uh, so my mother was working, but, you know, it's a low-paid job. We, my mother and I, shared a room, uh, you know, 14 years of age, and we're sharing a room together, a bedroom together. But, you know, we made ends meet. Um, you know, she would bring, you get paid in cash at the every Friday, she'd bring that home and there I was counting it putting things aside, money aside for different bills and so forth. And some weeks, there was no money left over. So that is not lost on me. All these years later, that is not lost on me. Um, and that's why today that I'm very committed to ensuring that others, when I'm in a room, mindful that when I'm in a room and conversations are being had, that I've always got one foot or, you know, my mind thinking about those who cannot be in that room for whatever reason, whether that be finance, because of social capital, whether or not the room is being exclusive or it's being inclusive, for whatever reason, always mindful of my humble start. Yes. I mean, I know that you came back to the UK in uh, 1998, 1999. How happy were you? 91, sorry. I was having to think for a moment. (laughs) How happy were you to re- return back to the to the UK? I had always, in my mind, I always wanted to return to the United Kingdom to study British or, or study in this jurisdiction of England and Wales. I always wanted to return here. I did not get on with America. I think you've pr- probably read, uh, your listeners have read, where I have said, you know, America would be a turning point for me. I'd be overwhelmed by the poverty, the injustice, people unable to access their rights because of their low socioeconomic position because of the colour of their skin. And we're still seeing that today. I was in Chicago last year uh, on business and totally overwhelmed by the number of people sleeping rough in the streets, in the park, in tents and so forth. And and it's not just America. I was uh, somewhere in London yesterday, uh, central London yesterday, and walking past people sleeping in the streets in countries, and I know times are hard for many, but in countries as rich as ours, with the resources and the infrastructure such as ours, people should not be, we should not have to be stepping over people sleeping in the streets. And this goes back to a conversation today that I was having yesterday with a colleague, and we were talking about the wealthy. How are we defining wealthy? And I said to her, but we are. And she said, well, no. She said, I haven't got any money coming in. I'm poor. And I said, but on paper, you're not. And I said, and in fact, let's strip that back a bit more. From the chap who's sleeping, I was away at the weekend in Ramsgate and there was a chap sleeping in the car park. One doesn't even want to go into that car park because of the rats, let alone sleeping there. And I said, actually, if you asked him, he would say that we were wealthy. And of course, wealthy isn't just defined, just isn't just defined, if we are to define it, in terms of money, 
or assets from that chap sleeping on the streets and those others that I have encountered this week. We are wealthy in so many other respects. We are indeed. We are indeed. And um, coming back to the UK at that time, you were not able to use your US qualification sort of instantly and you had to do an access course. Is that that correct to, to get into university? Absolutely. So access to higher qualification, two years. I was initially unemployed because, as you say, you know, trying to find my feet, trying to get gather that information. And when I'm asked the question, my low socioeconomic position was one of the biggest hurdles in my life, the impulse. And that's why Tunde, I focused on social mobility, because in my mind, if you're poor, you're poor. It doesn't matter what your colour, your gender, your race, your sexuality, disability, ability, whatever. It doesn't matter. If you in this society, if you do not have money, you do not have the networks, the contacts, the know-how, you struggle. Because let's be honest, you know, if you look at people we put in positions of power, and I was asked this question uh, a couple of weeks ago on Social Mobility Day, how do we solve or resolve the issue of social mobility? And I said, we have to rethink who we consider to be leaders. Who do we put in positions of authority? 13 of our 17 post-war prime ministers have come from Oxbridge. And if we're saying to our young people that the only way you're going to achieve is if you go to, you're privately educated, go to, and I have nothing wrong with being privately educated, but if you are privately educated or you go to Oxbridge, this is the only, this is how you achieve in our society, then it is a dangerous message to be sending out. So for me, having to go back, it took me a couple of years to find out that information because the internet was not as prolific back then as it is now, where you can just go and Google, you know, how do I get funding to go to law school or any of that? I did not have anyone within my network, I did not know a lawyer or anyone, solicitor, barrister, whatever, that I could go and ask as to for work experience, um, for internships, or how do I do this? Who do I apply? Which law school should I apply to? And I remember when I applied to, I'm just, and at that time, we didn't have as many law schools, but I applied to a particular law school. And I was told at the time that ethnic minorities do not do well at that law school. So don't even think about applying to it. And I remember I turned back and I said, just because ethnic minorities do not do well at that law school is not to suggest that this one will not do well. And that's why I stress the point about running our own race, writing our own story and creating our own narrative. Yes. And I think people will be surprised because of the the lofty position that you've got to in your career that, you know, at times you were doing odd jobs here and there, particularly during that time where you were sort of at university or just after. I believe you were doing a bit of cleaning at some times. You were working for British Rail, uh, care working homes, care gardens, homes. Yes. Yeah. So I'm sure, yeah. you know, I'm sure that will be quite surprising to many people, but it just documents the journey that you've had. So that, that makes it even more of an interesting story. And then how, how easy or how difficult was it to get your first legal job? Gosh, well, absolutely. So the training contract, which has been phased out now Mm. uh, in replacement of the solicitor's qualifying exam, which is exactly what it says, exams, because the training contract was recognised as an artificial barrier to qualification. Law schools, universities were pumping out tens of thousands, I think it's fair to say, of students every year. But there was only roughly about uh, a couple thousand 
training contracts. So it created an unfair barrier. So that was replaced uh, and has been filtered out. And I think we'll end by 2030 for those of who've already started it. But the point was this, is that I had to embark upon a training contract, which is the two years of practical training in a firm, or these days you can do it in a business. But those days, for the most part, you did it in a firm for two years before you could be signed off and qualified after you passed a couple of exams. But it was difficult. I can't remember whether it was 150 or 300 plus, but either way, it was a lot of applications, written applications, because again, in those days, you wrote on a paper, you posted it. Written applications, I turned up to uh, interviews in places that I would never want to go back to, you know, because I needed this quote unquote this pass in order to qualify. And coupled with the fact that after a few years that you've come out of law school, you've got your law school qualification, but it becomes spent after so many years. So you were up against time as well. But for me, having made all those applications, and I remember coming home one Easter, my father saying to me, how are you getting on? You know, what have you done? Da, da, da. And I said, oh, you know, you can imagine what I said to him. So he said, give me what you've got. My father worked at the magistrate, local magistrate's court at that time. And my father uh, is a Gemini like myself. Uh, we both think we're as funny or more funny than the other, but equally have outgoing personalities and will talk to anyone and as he did. And so he started to um, give out my CV covering letters to anyone who, you know, any solicitor that came into the firm. And I was so blessed and so lucky that it was given to a local firm in Ellsbury. And what happened was that they had recruited two years in advance for their trainee to come in. But the individual who they had given it to, her husband had found or had got another job and was to be relocated. So she couldn't take up the training contract. And this is like in like the April, the May, and you're due to start the training contract in the September. And she couldn't take it up. And there I was, I was invited to go along, have a chat with Mr. Richard Keefley, who was the senior partner of Horde and James in Ellsbury, Buckinghamshire. And I'm eternally grateful to Mr. Keefley for giving me the opportunity. And, and, you know, we had such a glorious conversation. We both had gone to the same law school. We both shared uh, a like of uh, classical music. Um, So a word to the wise, if you put anything on your CV, make sure it is the truth and you've done your research and can talk to it. Um, And he offered me the training contract. And so it was, you know, in my local hometown, less than a 10 minute walk from home that I had trained and qualified. But even after getting this job, it still wasn't, you know, still wasn't easy for you because within the first two years, I believe you were you were made redundant not just once but twice. Twice, absolutely, yes, made redundant twice in as many years. So, got the training contract, conveyancing how we deal with the selling and, and, and purchase of residential homes and so forth. I didn't want to go into conveyancing, but that was quite prevalent at the time. I wanted to be a litigator, and so I didn't stay on with Horden Jones post qualification. And that's where the, you know, the doing the gardens came into it and so forth until I found a job in Huntington, which meant me move in about two hours away from home to take up that position. And I did that. That didn't last because again, as public funding cuts in legal aid started to bite, offices started to close. Some of their offices started to close. So I left Huntington, found another job closer to home in Watford 
And again, same thing as public funding. You know, they had several offices. They started to downsize. And I did not want to stay on to do family. I wanted to be a litigator. But I was lucky enough to get a job in London, even though I was told I would never work in London because I had trained in London, you know, hadn't worked in London. There was no room for me in in London, the city. I was able to land my first job in London with the General Council of the Bar, the Bar Council, which is the representative body for barristers, as a senior investigations officer and solicitor to the then Complaints Commissioner. Okay, so finally getting your your career going in the chosen field that you wanted to to focus on. And then if, if, we, if we move forward a few years, your journey with the Law Society began in 2013. And can you tell us a little bit about how that started and obviously sort of progressing into you becoming the, the president in, um, in 2021? Mm. So I became a council member with the Law Society in 2013. But I had been involved with the Law Society on and off since about 2004 when I joined a working group to look at council membership issues. And then I kind of, that lasted for about uh, 15 months or so, fell away from that. And then in 2008, and not for want of trying to apply for different committees, to get onto different committees, but not successful. But in 2008, I believe it was, I was successful and got onto the council membership committee, representing the constituency of Westminster and Holborn. And from that, I was invited to join the executive committee of the Holborn and Westminster, as it was so named then, City of Westminster and Holborn Law Society. And that kind of started things, really. I sat on the CMC for about four, five years, put myself forward. I was involved in, like, with the Association of Women Solicitors. The Law Society was changing its rules and its constituents, constituency boundaries. And so they created this new division of uh, Women Lawyers Division. And so there was three council seats And I put myself forward for one of those and I was elected in 2013. I then put myself forward in 2015 after two years to become Deputy Vice President because you've got to become Deputy Vice President first, then you go on to be Vice President, then you go on to be President as I did. But not being successful in 2015, I kept trying. And on my fourth attempt, four times later, I was elected as the Deputy Vice President in 2019. And in March 2021, I became the 177th, the first black, the first person of colour, the sixth female to become president of the Law Society in in its almost 200-year history. Fantastic. To to, to do anything four times over is a a big ask of anybody. So that really demonstrates your, your passion for what you wanted to do. Just kind of almost reflecting back on what you said over the last sort of 30 minutes, I mean, having a positive attitude seems to be a big thing for you. And you've been quoted as saying that, um, you know, even in setbacks, they have helped you sort of develop and give you the opportunity to refine things and, and, and so forth. So how have you developed this kind of almost like bulletproof positive mental attitude over the years? And, you know, if, if you were to advise anybody about how to develop it, what would you advise them? Well, I, I think my my father would take the credit because he would say, it was learnt from him and for everything that he had to go through. But I think for me, lots of it is through lived experience. I absolutely believe, you know, when people said to me, I would have taken the hint after the first attempt and given up, I look a bit perplexed because I'm thinking, what hint? And if there was a hint, it wasn't mine to take. But 
the lesson was that, you know, there's a biblical passage that talks about the lesson is not in how many times you got knocked down. It's in how did you get up? And so I took the opportunities. And of course, I was devastated and I was heartbroken. But I took the opportunity throughout those three previous attempts to refine, to hone my offering, to look at those who had succeeded, learn from them where I could, read what they had said, what they had did. And so I started to perfect that offering. I also believe that nothing comes to you before your time. But that resilience, that strength, that determination, because the more they told me I couldn't, was the more I was determined that I could. And so I absolutely kept going. I kept pushing and pushing at that door because I believe that every door is open. If you push, you persevere until something happens. And that door finally opened on the fourth attempt. Yes. And president of the Law Society from March 2021 until October 2022. So I'm aware that you know, obviously part of your presidency was during the pandemic. And mm-hmm. um, how difficult was that for you to, to manage that during that time? And also, do you have any regrets that you weren't able to have the presidency in kind of normal times? Because I, I even see, I, I saw on YouTube that one of your speeches, I think it was your inaugural speech, was kind of done online. So how, how was that for you? Well, let's start with the inaugural speech. Twenty uh, second of March, twenty twenty one. There's three of us in that in in the Law Society Hall, including the security guard, myself, and a member of staff. Yeah. Fifteen months, the doors were closed at the Law Society. Wow. But yes, let me start by saying I had was due to become president in October twenty twenty one. I had my life planned around becoming president. I did not envisage a pandemic. I did not envisage the president before me who would have to step down early. And so that meant that I would have to step up early to March 2021. Didn't factor in all of those. So I think for me, and it was difficult, you know, during my time, so the longest serving president from what we understand, serving 19 months instead of the usual 12 months. During my time, coming to it, the presidency at the tail end of Brexit, living through a pandemic, the war in Ukraine, the withdrawal in Afghanistan, the death of Her Majesty the Queen, the cost of living crisis, the biggest shake-up to the way solicitors train and qualify in 30 years, over 70 ministerial resignations and uh, three Law Society CEOs during that time. I think it's fair to say that it was a volatile and eventful period of office and exhausting, you know, but I was the steady hand on the tiller. I'm absolutely proud of the way that we as a profession conducted ourselves. We kept the wheels of justice turning as lawyers through the pandemic. The profession galvanized itself around the issue of inclusion in terms of recognizing the solicitor profession, that we are not where we need to be in terms of diversity. And when I talk about diversity, let me be clear. I'm not just talking about race. I'm talking about all the colours of diversity, including social mobility, that we are not where we need to be. And so the way that we galvanised ourselves and started to talk about it and the initiatives, and of course, Tunde, lots of this was brought to the fore during March 2020 around the abhorrent events around the death of George Floyd in the United States of America. And I remember when the press was calling, saying, we want to talk to Stephanie about her experience of institutional racism in the profession, I said, I'm not interested in talking to the press 
about my experience of institutional racism in the profession, because there'll be other people who will do that. But what I'm interested in is talking about change. So when I step down, when I leave office, we are no longer talking about it, but we are taking action, measurable action, that I can see the difference when I have left office. And that's exactly what we did. We started to call together the other regulators, the Bar Council, the Bar Standards Board, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, Silex, other representative bodies. And we came together and the question was asked under the Achieve and Change Together umbrella, what are we going to do? What are we going to do to move the dial? And as I say, so I don't per se have any regrets because I believe that I'm exactly where I was supposed to be, that, you know, my steps were already ordered. Um, and in fact, you know, usually the president goes off all around the world doing lots of things, you know, flying around the world, visiting different countries. That's all nice. But I think not being able to do that, being in my home lockdown for a long time, allowed me to be present. Yeah, yeah. And I was just wondering, because, you know, obviously during this presidency, it's a, it's a role which carries a lot of sway and power. You know, you've been interviewed by Channel 4. I, I understand that you were kind of sharing the stage with the likes of Hillary Clinton during this time as well. In fact, over three years, I think you were kind of seen as part of the the most 100 most influential black people in the, in the UK. So I was just wondering... How did you deal with this increased level of press attention that came with the role? Was that, was that quite easy to, uh, to adjust to or did it take some time to, to get used to? I always knew through those four attempts, I always knew that if I got here, that it would be powerful. And it's such a remarkable platform to be on, to be an office holder, to be president. I also recognised that it was going to be a once-in-a-lifetime, possibly a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Well, certainly, because you only become president once. Nobody's dared put themselves forward twice. <laughs> but a remarkable platform to be on. And I was determined to use it, to make a difference, to be visible. And that's exactly what I did when I became, when I was elected as deputy vice president, even though you at that time you didn't take office until, I didn't take office until July the 4th, 2019, it went public around about tail end of April. I was working on a project through my consultancy company. And by the 14th of May, I gave notice on that project because I recognised that this, whatever this was, was going to be huge. And so an amazing platform to be on. And it was up to me to utilise that. And so absolutely. And in fact, I got frustrated because during the pandemic, I didn't believe that the Law Society was visible enough putting itself out there on the press, talking about rights and the law and so forth. And so when I became president, I was determined to change that. But lots of it also, Tunde, was people coming to us and wanting to interview me. You know, Channel 4, all of those, Nagamanchetti, Radio 5, you know, and the, and the people who brought Hillary Clinton to London came to me and I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a scam. You know, after about four meetings, I said, look, am I actually going to meet Hillary Clinton? And they said, Stephanie, you're going to share a stage with Hillary Clinton. And I was just so, I was, you know, to this day, I mean, how awesome. Yeah. And for anyone wondering about imposter syndrome, yes, it did come when I shared that stage with Hillary Clinton, but very quickly it went. And, and of course, over the years, you know, I've met the likes of Sam Smith, Sean Wallace, you know, the Dark Destroyer from The Chase, Dame Denise Lewis, 
Beverly Nice, Al Sharpton, as I said before, um, gosh, and, and whoever else, lots of remarkable people that I've been photographed with. Excellent. Excellent. So, you know, if you, if you look back on your time as the president, you did it for, for longer than most people do it, as you've said before. What, what are you most proud of? And uh, is, there, is there anything that if you was given the, the chance to do it again, is there anything that you would have done differently? What I'm most proud of is I set out from the start and I said that it was my mission to leave this profession more diverse and inclusive than the one I entered. But I was clear that it must be a shared ambition with each and every one of us playing our part. And I, as I alluded to before, am proud of the way that the profession galvanised itself around that. Not that we didn't have in the beginning, but I always talked about how powerful we'd be if we collectively and collaboratively raised our voices. We now have so many different uh, initiatives, work internships and so forth, scholarships going on, and raising that awareness around the work that we do as lawyers and the work that we do as a profession. So I don't have regrets because that suggests to have regrets or would I have done anything differently? I could spend a lot of time thinking about things I could have done differently. I'm all for the positive, taking the good from uh, or finding the good in everything. So I can't think of anything that I would have done differently. I probably would not have had a pandemic because that was difficult. And it's testament to myself, to the law society, to everyone around me, because that was the point on day. I came to the presidency during lockdown. My vice presidency was during lockdown. All the people that I was, you know, government ministers and so forth, that you're normally in a room, all the colleagues that you would meet, who you're supposed to establish a rapport with, you're going in head to head to discuss whatever with. I had never been in the room with them. I'd never met them. And so here I was on a screen trying to assert my authority on behalf of my profession. And I had to learn that very quickly. I also had to learn how do I continue to be visible? How do I continue to be relevant from the confines of my home? So perhaps the pandemic is something that I would have done differently. But as I say, exactly where I was am meant to be. And who knows if the pandemic didn't come along, maybe I might not have been so um, visible. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Um, I mean, I, I used to be an actor uh, back in the day and uh, I've always been fascinated by the voice, the power that the voice has. And, and I was just wondering, you know, you're a very powerful speaker. I've seen some of your footage on, on YouTube and so forth. Have you ever had any sort of voice work over the years? Because as I say, you're a very powerful speaker. And I was just wondering if that's something you've, you've considered. It's an interesting point you raised there, Tunde, because I'll tell you why. I was recently in Spain, and I don't know if you saw one of my posts on LinkedIn, but it talked about the power of women. In fact, I can't find it. Oh, it's probably over there. But it talks about the power of women by Mary Beard. And uh, one of the things she talks about is the fact that Mer- Margaret Thatcher had elocution lessons, but she also had lessons, including those lessons, was to lower the tone of her voice. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because I was reading it to my friend on holiday. And uh, I said, do you think that's why I'm so good at public speaking? Because my voice is so low. <laughs> anyway, we both had a laugh about that. So of co- over the years, and as an office holder, you are you receive, um, so I probably received about three, four sessions around to deal with the press, you know, in terms of the camera, uh, in front of a camera, TV camera. And I remember actually one of those last uh, 
because I never went back. One of those sessions, the last one I went to as president, I walked into the room and I think this was my fourth one. I walked into the room and the chap, you know, greeted me and so forth. And he said, um, so, you know, Stephanie, you know, I've read a bit about you and you want to help black people get into the legal profession. And I paused and I looked at him and I said, can you tell me which video or audio you listen to where I specifically say that I want to help black people get into the profession? And of course, he couldn't. He couldn't come up with an example. And I said to him, because I said, I want to help all people get into the profession. But what was interesting is the way that people sought to try to attempt to pigeonhole me into certain categories and still do. Because the whole point is, I believe this is an issue that takes the whole village, whatever the colour, whatever the, you know, whatever, it takes everyone playing our part to make that difference. We cannot do it alone. We have to do it as one, as a community. So that was interesting. But in terms of public speaking, I do not recollect, uh, to the best of my recollection, had voice lessons, coaching lessons. Of course, I've practised Practice makes perfect over the years. But it comes from a place of spirit, you know, it comes from a place of an indefatigable spiritual being. I talk from the heart. I talk from, you know, from purpose. um, And I think that comes across, you know, in things I say, hopefully. Oh, yes. And uh, I I did read, I did read elsewhere that your life is one of, is one of service, um, which is, which is very inspiring. I mean, we haven't we haven't even touched on other things that you you've been involved in. I know we, we're running out of time, but you know, you're part of the Social Economic Task Force. Your well, that's the- come to a close now, but oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. but, the, but the but the legacy of that work continues. Yeah. But when I say that, absolutely, being of service, that is exactly what I mean. So, for instance, when I had my presidential gala dinner for those three charities, raising an amazing amount of money for law care who looks after well-being and uh, mental health, Sutton Trust around social mobility and around Access to Justice Foundation, which is exactly what it says it is. We raised over £67,000 for those three charities by holding a dinner. I was then have been invited back to hold, to be part of another dinner for, for Support Through Court. And Support Through Court is a charity that supports people who are having to navigate their way through the court system on their own for whatever reason, because financially they can't afford representation and so forth. And that's another gala dinner. But I have a table. And what I did was two tickets, set aside two tickets to sit at that table with me, paid for out of my own pocket, because I appreciate that there will be people who will want to be in that room who couldn't be in that room. So I gave away two tickets. The other day, when I became president, I had a young man who had just graduated from King's as a doctor. And um, bless him, he's off to Harvard on Sunday to pursue his dream of working or studying at Harvard and to further his career. And again, a young man who absolutely believes in a life of service. And he was trying to raise over £75,000, you know, to make this a reality. And again, I contributed to that. And I wish that I could do so much more. And I do do, you know, lots of things. I do about two, three speaking events a month for free and so forth. Um, and so much of my time as well. I wish I could do so much more because I know what it's like to not be in the room. I know what it's like to not want to do something because of not having the, the currency to be able to do that. 
And if I might end by saying so, the being president allowed me to walk through doors that I didn't even know was there, invited into rooms I would never have been invited into. And so it is incumbent upon me to do all I can with my influence, with my knowledge, with my networks, to open doors and leave those doors open for others to follow through. Great. And if, if you look back on your career, we, we ask this of every, every person that comes on, how much of your success do you think is down to luck? How much is down to hard work? Or how much is down to talent? If you had to choose one of the three, what would you say has been the, uh, the biggest contributor? And I think it's all, I, I don't think you can, for me, it's, it's all three. I think it's difficult to pick one because mm. for me, I couldn't have had one without the other. And I remember I did say to somebody at the start, gosh, I've been so lucky. And they said to me, no, it's not luck at all. It's either a higher being that I'm blessed in terms of, you know, as I said before, my steps have been ordered, but it's around hard work. It's around putting yourself forward, coming out of your comfort zone. So many of us want to stay in our comfort zone. And sometimes when you're chasing your dreams, it becomes uncomfortable. But that's when we know that we are growing. So for me, it's all of those things. So it's difficult to choose one because it would be easy for me to say it's luck. But I also recognise it's been hard work. Okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. And and what's next for for, for you, Stephanie? I mean... uh... Any, well, it's got to be the House of Lords, hasn't well, it? Well, <laughs> I was going to say, any, any political ambitions? Well, it's interesting you say that. There are lots of people who want me or would like for me to go into politics. Mm. Um, I think we as a country have to reset. Well, actually, probably globally, we need to reset the way we deal with elected politicians and, in fact, the way elected politicians behave. And I think one of the biggest contributors to bad behaviour amongst all of us has been social media. So elected politics for me is not something I'm in awe of, but I do believe that I could make a valuable contribution if I was appointed. Okay, well, we'll stay glued to that. I'm sure that uh, you'd be a fantastic uh, politician or member of the House of Lords. So, you know, good luck with that. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Tunde. Thank you so much to Stephanie for her time. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can definitely see her speaking in the Houses of Parliament sometime soon. So watch this space. It's a shame we actually didn't get a chance to have a bit more time. But a fun fact for all you guys, you probably didn't know that she is related to the former Wigan athletic football player, Emerson Boyce. And for any football fans out there, You'll probably know that he was the captain of the Wigan team that defeated Manchester City in the 2013 FA Cup final. Such a small world. As always, please, if you do like the show, do leave a message, hit us up on the socials or send us an email to howicrushedit at gmail.com and catch you on the next show.